Welcome to another episode of our uh, SaaS Story podcast. I'm your host, Ash, and this is a show where I interview proven founders and industry experts who share their stories, strategies, and insights to help you build, launch, and grow your SaaS business. In this episode, I'll be talking to Justin, who is the co-founder of Pikafu. Pikafu is an innovative DIY consumer research service that democratizes enterprise-grade market research. With access to 10 million U.S. respondents, Pikafu enables businesses and individuals to gather both quantitative and qualitative feedback on various aspects of their products and businesses. From product branding to product design to marketing creatives, Pikafu functions as a digital focus group, allowing users to test images, video, and tests within a private sandbox environment. Renowned mobile game companies rely on Pikafu to test app icons, game UX, and characters, while leading retail brands utilize it for testing product design, packaging, and images. I hope you enjoy it. Great. Justin, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ash. Awesome. Do you have a favorite quote, something that inspires or motivates you that you can share? Uh, I'm probably going to butcher it, but, uh, the one about the man in the ring, you know what I'm talking about? Where, <laughs> uh, it's, it's about being in the ring as opposed to be a bystander. I, I forgot what the exact quote was, but, um, I think entrepreneurship is something that needs to be experienced and, and not really too much read about. I think too many people are like, get in their own heads and, and don't just go do it. And it's easy to crit criticize and kind of like poke at you know, poking holes at other people's businesses, but until you've done it for yourself, you know, it's, it's a different journey. Indeed. Indeed. I like that. I like that. Yeah. Great. So, uh, can you give us a sense of, um, you know, like tell us about, um, Pikafoo, what does the product do? Who's it for? And what the main problem you're helping to solve? Sure. So, um, you could think of it as a digital focus group. Um, we have these very short form surveys. So a single question, and then you upload uh, some creative assets if you want feedback on them. So uh, for example, if you're writing a book and you want to test out a book title, like which book would you buy, put up a couple titles and our audience will go out and pay people to vote on which one they like, give their demographic information. And most importantly, they'll give a written explanation why they made that choice. And so all of this is very fast. So it happens within a matter of 30 minutes to an hour. And so you're now able to kind of get out in that, you know, proverbial coffee shop and like get feedback from your target audience, which is so important when you're validating ideas or anything. And so, um, yeah, it, it, it solves that problem of gathering target customer feedback to, um, validate anything along the product spectrum. So it could be as early as an idea, like, Hey, would you be interested in a solution that does this all the way down to like marketing creatives? We'll see people pre-testing Facebook ads or, you know, things. Awesome. Awesome. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, you, you have like more than around 10 million, 10 million, uh, people who actually help you from the U S demographic. Yeah. So what we do is we tap into existing enterprise market research panels. So the same kinds of panels that a Procter and Gamble or, or one of those large companies would tap into. Uh, so we tap into those same sources as well, but we add our own layer of demographic targeting and data quality control on top of it in a programmatic self-serve way. Typically the way that, uh, a large company would do this is they would have their consumer insights team. They would have a research consultant. They would, you know, run a, create a really long form survey and the, the survey would probably take like two months or something like that. Then the consultant has to clean all the data, represent the analysis back to the insights team. And so super long process, we're trying to productize it into a very easy to use, you know, point and click set it up in one minute, um, approach where people who have no expertise on running these things can now gather consumer feedback. Awesome. Perfect. So tell me more about how much your target consumers basically, uh, I mean, I'm talking about uh, even uh, small and medium scale companies as well as the giant enterprises, how much actually they typically invest in this kind of research or market research kind of, uh, you know, uh, because they, because I'm guessing that they want to understand the market as well as they, they want to understand the opportunity, right? So how, how does it work for them in terms of, uh, you know, bringing back the benefits on the table? Yeah. I mean, I think what 
the the most interesting thing that we've seen over the many years that we've been running this business is kind of the different usage patterns. Uh, when we first started it as entrepreneurs, we thought it was just going to be other entrepreneurs that were going to be the the customers. Um, I mean, as it turns out, a lot of entrepreneurs are kind of stingy with <laughs> how much they spend on things. And so it didn't turn out to be a great initial market. Um, authors actually turn out to be the next one. So self-publishing authors, book titles and book covers, kind of anything you're going to invest in, like, a, you know, print or something like that, that you can't really live test, you can't take it back, turned out to be an interesting use case. The only issue with that is that you don't typically write a lot of books <laughs> at a very high frequency. Um, and also they're, they're kind of consumer, like more instead of a, of a business, they're more of a consumer type of buying pattern. So, um, our target, uh, customer profile now is, um, a little bit larger. So like gaming companies, we have a lot of, uh, large mobile game companies and then, um, brands. So people who are selling on, uh, Amazon, you know, on Shopify, all those companies are making, um, large monetary investments into software development or they're buying products overseas and you know every decision they make could be you know tens of thousands of dollars right and if you if you get the decision wrong it's it's a huge impact and so the customers that we'll see um they typically run um uh quite a number of polls to validate design decisions and then iterate on designs as they're doing it because it is so rapid um, and then once they've made the decisions, we see them come back and then start iterating on their marketing creative. So if it's a game, it might be app store icons or app store screenshots or something like those kinds of, uh, marketing videos. If it's a product, it might be the Amazon main image or like all those other images that are in the gallery or the bullet points, all that kind of stuff. So, um, it becomes a high frequency use product uh, for the right type of customer. For the wrong type of customer or not the wrong but a less ideal customer like authors yeah. it's it's kind of like a few times once a year if they are even that prolific of a book writer mm. great stuff so i'm guessing that if i'm running a gaming company and i am launching let's say one more level or or a set of weapons i would come to you and then i'd say Justin, I have like 10 weapons created by my designers or my gaming developers. Would you be able to check for me which one would work better for the game? Is it exactly? Yeah. So That's we'll see people testing game characters, game UX, um, even like how characters are moving or different levels, that kind of thing. Uh, so a lot of that testing, even, even as early as sketch, uh, like storybook sketches, like we'll have people kind of like, Hey, here's the general storyline. Is this something that would be appealing to you? Um, and then sometimes we'll see uh, competitive tests as well. So like maybe you're creating a solitaire game and you're trying to dethrone like the top solitaire game, right? So maybe you want to get feedback on, I think my UX is a little bit better than that one. And so uh, a lot of interesting ways to, to do it. And the most important thing is that you're getting written feedback why. So people are explaining like, oh, okay, I really like how you put the button here. Awesome, awesome. Great. So, um, so can you give us a sense of uh, the size of the business? Where are you in terms of revenue, number of customers, size of team, etc.? Yeah. So we're doing, uh, I guess I would say a, a couple million dollars in revenue uh, a year. Um, we're at about sixteen people, um, self-funded. So we started this as a side project, like I said years ago, um, and then it kind of grew organically until about 2019 and then we decided to uh that's kind of we, we started seeing an inflection point in the growth and and my business partner john and i decided to uh like reinvest um all revenue and profit into growing the business and try to grow it as as fast as a self-funded company can grow <laughs> which you know has its natural caps but uh so we've been hiring since then and uh you know trying to flush out the product and uh, increase our marketing efforts Awesome. Great. So I want to dig into that. I want to, uh, you know, unwrap this, this story. So, so tell me more, you know, what you and your co-founder were actually doing before you yeah. got, uh, you know, make a full thing. Sure. Yeah. I mean, we were running, uh, a completely different, uh, self-funded business before we were running a, uh, restaurant menu aggregator, uh, back in 2006, uh, we had started this, uh, this other site and, um, 
we were doing a redesign at the time of this of this uh, website, and um, we needed some feedback. I think John and I couldn't decide on which redesign to go with. So, being engineers, we're, we decided, well, let's just spin up, you know, uh, some kind of service and um, and see how it goes. And so we threw it up on Hacker News, uh, you know, when we launched it in two thousand and eight, and it kind of sat there for a little bit. Uh, Gabriel Weinberg of DuckDuckGo like blogged about it because he really liked it. And uh, they're still one of our biggest customers now. Um, and we just kind of left it there. And it, and it went through this evolution of different uh, customer use cases, right? Like we had the authors, we had some game companies, we had some general software insurance company. You know, it, it was very interesting to kind of see them come and go and then try to understand what usage pattern actually was ideal for building a business on. And it wasn't really until um, e-commerce came along that we found kind of a profile, a customer profile that had um, like the right amount of usage and kind of like business savviness because, you know, B2B is, is going to be a little bit more lucrative than and B2C. And um, you also, for our, for our product, which is not traditional SaaS, it's more consumption based. We did need to see uh, enough uh, points that you needed to like kind of test things. Right. And so, you know, uh, smaller companies or um, less ideal customer profiles would have you testing maybe once a year, or every few months, but like, that's not great to build a business on. We found that e-commerce companies that were shipping a lot of different brands, you know, a lot of these companies that sell online typically have a lot of different product lines. So they're constantly working on new products or, you know, variations of products or color variations or marketing assets. So there's always something interesting to test. Wow. Okay. So your ICP was basically the e-commerce companies who's launching more and more products every yeah. quarter or something every exactly. Year. Okay. Great. And as you mentioned that you, you and you co-founder, you're both engineers. You're both um, come from technical background. Yeah, we're both engineers. Uh, we both mm -hmm. did computer science at Berkeley, and I know they always say like that's not the right way to do it. You're supposed to have like a balance <laughs> in the co-founders. <laughs> You know, somehow, somehow it works. And uh, we both have kind of mutual interest in trying all the different things. So while we're both tactical, we, we both dabble in sales and marketing and, you know, operations, whatever it is. So, it's, you know, it's worked out. Yeah, why not? I mean, you know, it's only, I was reading the other day uh, an article and I found out there is only 1% uh, software developers among 8 billion people on the earth. Wow. Interesting well, set. <laughs> so when I know about it, I was like, okay, that's something interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So that's good. That's good. So so tell me more about like when you started Pikachu. Um I'm I'm sure as a founder, everybody struggles with getting traction at yeah. the first you know instance. So what actually uh, what strategies you used in order to get more traction on your portal or your or your landing page? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, yeah, so like I said, we we kind of threw it up, and uh, you know, the hacker news approach I think is everyone's first approach, and you hope that it leads to lasting traffic, but it never does. Um, I think the challenging part with our service was that it was not something that people were necessarily looking for. Um, so it, you know, it's not like a project management software or something like, oh, well, I need a to do list, like I'm going to go search for it. So. Um, what worked for us uh, and what we've, we, we still lean into is, is um, leveraging other people's audiences. So um, affil the affiliate channel or affiliate slash like key opinion leader of influencer approach. So not necessarily like traditional spammy affiliate, you know, not like coupon sites and things like that, but people who actually had an audience. So maybe they had a, a blog or an e-course or a podcast or something like that, where they're teaching their audience something, right? So in the beginning for self-publishing authors, there's a lot of book marketing um, influencers. And so they're teaching other self-publishing authors, like the ins and outs of how to market your book and, you know, all these things. And so those were a great first avenue because, you know, the, those audience members are consuming everything that that person puts out. And so the same goes in the e-commerce space where you know, it's, it's a booming space where everyone wants to learn how to sell something online, whether it's drop shipping or Shopify or, you know, Etsy or Amazon. And so there's a lot of educational resources. And so we lean pretty heavily into, uh, 
um, building affiliate relationships with those content creators, um, getting onto their podcasts and tapping into their audiences to build exposure to PicFu. Yeah. So you, you, you were actually, were you actually paying them off in upfront or it was just normal affiliate program then? Uh, normal commission based. Yeah. Normal commission based yeah. program. I mean, it, it is difficult though. I mean, I, I think, uh, in the beginning when you're not known and you're reaching out to people, then, you know, obviously everyone's going to be a little bit skeptical and like, why should I promote you or whatever it is? So it, it does take some time to build up some credibility. And a lot of times what we did was, you know, hop on a call and try to prove that value to them, um, like use the service, give them free credit so that they can experience it for themselves. Um, and then once you start getting a few of these under your belt, then you have something to point to and it's a little bit easier to sign up the next one. But for sure, those first few are, you know, you're kind of DMing and messaging people and like really begging to, to, to kind of get some exposure. So um, it's it's an uphill battle, but you just got to keep pers persevering. Indeed. Yeah. And that's one of the one of the skill you need as founder. For sure. <laughs> Perseverance. Perseverance. <laughs> Okay, so so tell me more when when you had that epiphany. Did you look in the market? Were there other products? What was going on at the time? And did you see from your research that what what did you see from your research that encouraged you to move up ahead with this product? Yeah, um, we we started seeing a fit in with with uh, with our product, and when we looked, we kind of only saw more upmarket, more complicated enterprise solutions. And so that le led us to believe that there was kind of a, a market for the SMB self-serve market, uh, especially when a lot of them actually did these things where they had a really hefty annual subscription, like kind of blockers, Like right? You had to be on like this expensive annual subscription, even to access the platform because they were selling to more corporate type customers and that's easy money. Right. And so even uh removing that simple barrier uh it was kind of a huge differentiator and so um yeah we, we we did see like this opportunity to carve out a space where uh people who weren't enterprise companies still wanted to have this kind of software and we kind of fell into it right we weren't coming from a background of market research or anything like that but once we started seeing how people were using it and then hearing their stories from our customers we kind of realized that, oh, this is actually a, a DIY version of, you know, what, what larger companies are doing. And so then we started doing a lot more research into the space and trying to understand, okay, how do we then tailor this enterprise grade market research that they're doing up here and bringing it down to everyone else? It, obviously, you don't need to bring everything. All enterprise features aren't necessary for the, the SMB market, but kind of what are the more important things to cherry pick? Got it. Got it. Okay. So you basically you basically understood where was the gap and then you utilize that gap while you right. were launching. Right. Yeah, that's good. That's a very very good strategy. Um, so let's move on further from there. Then, so I'm guessing that when you started getting traction, you get started getting you know uh, maybe initially small customers. How did you approach for larger enterprises? What was the strategy at that point? Yeah. So we it, what's always been interesting is that we've never uh done outreach to larger enterprises but they've always found us and so um we've been kind of pulled up um not kicking and screaming but like <laughs> like you know somewhat against our will into enterprise procurement processes and like security audits and all that kind of stuff um and it, it definitely is like a, a completely different sales cycle and a different model of interaction um i think it's just forced us to become a little bit more grown up we recently got our SOC 2 uh, certification. So, you know, that was one of the things, um, we built out a customer success team that, that kind of deals with our medium to large customers and kind of shepherds deals through, uh, procurement and, you know, all those legal, um, hoops. Um, and then also does kind of account-based check-ins on uh, some of our uh, larger customers. And so the core product I think remains the same where we try to uh, build in a little bit more kind of like grown-up SaaS, like the you know more team functionality and like reporting and all that kind of stuff. But we're we're definitely hesitant to allow enterprise to dictate the roadmap um, that would veer us a little bit too much in the enterprise way, right? Like we're trying to make sure that whatever we build adds value to the eighty percent of our customer base, which you know mostly is going to be SMB or, or mid market. So. 
uh, it's definitely an interesting balance because we want to maintain that accessibility and ease of use for everyone, but still find a way to, you know, appease the enterprise people who also find value in it. Um, and it's funny because they do find value, even though there are large companies that have consumer insights teams, but what, what they discover or what we've discovered is that, uh, when they have these small questions, like maybe, Hey, I'm creating a Facebook ad, or I want to adjust like this, you know, design and they go to their consumer insights teams, this, th that team says, oh, this is way too small for us to launch a project around. Like, no, we're not going to help you. So they're kind of like, you know, <laughs> out of luck. Yeah. So, uh, it kind of opens us as up, opens up this opportunity for the people who are actually trying to do work to get micro feedback on things. Otherwise they're just flying blind. Like the rest of us were, you know, so yeah, it's, uh, yeah. funny. The very very niche um, a, a gap in the market yeah. for, for enterprises. I mean, uh, funnily, we have different kind of certifications here in Europe. Uh, mm -hmm. you know. uh, so do, do these? So so okay. I'm guessing that you have a lot of content out there now, which is like ranking on Google or mm -hmm. different search engines, which actually brings a lot of uh, enterprise customers or or SMEs to your portal. Is that is that correct or yeah i mean we we also do content as well like we we put out blog content um we also generate you know videos and, and that kind of stuff as well so um and yeah so maybe to where you're going uh probably about half of our customer base is actually actually outside the us uh, because we started with a us-based panel um businesses who are selling into the us actually get more value from like other us businesses selling to us people because those people assume that they know everything. But if you're a Chinese seller or Chinese mobile game company, or, you know, a company in Europe who's selling products on Amazon to us consumers, that feedback is even more valuable to make sure that your product resonates and your marketing resonates. And so, yeah, about half of our customer base is uh, international. And so we've been building out our international success team and localizing the app. And it, it definitely brings a kind of a whole, whole slew of other uh, considerations. Awesome. Oh, that's, that's, that's really good to know because, um, most of the time what happens is when, when we are dealing with, with, uh, enterprise customers, uh, they straight away come to you and they say, oh, do you have, you know, soft certification yeah. or something like that? And you say, oh, what is that? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah. I'm talking about it yeah. for you know, starting point for, for founders. And then, then eventually you get to know, and then you have to do, oh, we have to get that certification in order to serve these customers. Yeah. You know, even though our product is, uh, you know, uh, comfortable enough to handle that kind of traffic or, or load, but still it's just a legal thing in place. Yeah. And it's, it's not a trivial decision either, because I mean, going through the SOC 2 certification is kind of like a burden right on the organization and you're, you're kind of putting all these controls and processes in place. So it's definitely something that founders shouldn't take lightly or just do just because one customer asks, you know, I, I think if I was a solo founder and st still trying to, to get, you know, a critical mass of revenue and customer base, just because one customer asked for SOC 2, like, I don't think I would necessarily do it. Um, I think you're, you would want your organization to kind of be, um, like robust enough to take on the overhead that it, those kinds of things bring. And I think what's also been interesting with enterprise is that, um, at least in our case, enterprise, the, uh, the amount of work to the revenues, it may seem like it's going to be like, you know, the revenue is going to make it worth it, but like, we actually have a lot of SMB customers who drive way more usage and have like no issues, you know, we don't even talk to them. Right. And I think that's, I think that's, uh, becoming more of the case as, you know, more businesses are coming, uh, from the ground up and there, there's a lot of successful businesses out there that aren't at the size that they have to have all this regulation and control in place. And so, um, you know, just chasing enterprise because you think enterprise is going to be like the be all end all of revenue is, you know, like not really worth it, I think. Got it. Got it. Great. Um, so let's, let's go back uh, one step and then talk more about you, your co-founder and your team. Sure. Uh, most of the time I get to know about, we have a really big community here in London and mm -hmm. we have a Y Combinator offices here. Uh, we, you know, Europe being 
We have, um, you know, lots of other VCs like Rocket, etc. And I keep attending these uh, events there. And I get to know about these um, new startups all the time that when you're, uh, you know, you're, you start up, you have, you build your team, the decision-making process gets tougher and tougher, mm. you know, because it's, 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 it becomes in your life at the point where it is the most difficult part. Yes. So, so, so yeah, how did, how, how, how do you streamline your decision-making um, between you, your co-founder and your teammates? Yeah, that's, I guess that's difficult, uh, especially at, at the different phases of growth. Um, I mean, I think at this point now we, we kind of have a few managers underneath us and, and, uh, a bunch of individual contributors. And so we're kind of changing the cadence to, you know, more of a like quarterly OKRs and, um, a little bit slower, but with deliberate pace, I guess is, uh, you know, I think when you have more people involved, uh, there's some organizational momentum that's that's difficult to shift and you also don't want to shift it too much. Right. I think there's, um, a habit that we've been trying to break as founders is, you know, we're used to moving very fast and pivoting, like, you know, in an instant, uh, which can be extremely disruptive to an organization and like individual devs or, you know, marketing folk who are, who think that their job, you know, for the given week is to do X, Y, and Z. And then you come in with you're like, Oh, I got this new idea. Like, Hey, let's try this. And that's incredibly frustrating. So I would say that our decision-making has, uh, slowed, uh, become like more measured, I, I suppose. Um, and, uh, mainly to protect the integrity of like the organization and its pace and, and everything like that. I'm not sure if that's the question you were asking, but. Yeah. 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 I mean, obviously we, we love to be involved in, in, in all the things and, you know, give feedback on things. But I think, um, as the founder, as, as the company grows and the organization grows, um, just being the torchbearer of that vision and, and that consistency is, is probably more important than kind of your involvement in the nitty gritty of, you know, what's now the day to day of like the development work or, or the marketing work. And so, um, it's a difficult habit to break, but I think it's, it's something that everyone has to learn when they grow. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I totally relate. <laughs> yeah, we get the crazy. feedback all the time from our team, like <laughs> stop meddling. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Great. So would you be able to share, um, a recent, um, achievement or milestone because who have, uh, as a company achieved which you're very proud of, or your team very proud of, which is out there, you know? Um, I mean, I guess I would say the, the SOC 2 certification, um, I, I'm pretty proud of that. I, I think, uh, like I was saying, it was a difficult decision to even do it because I think there was, there was like a handful of people asking for security audits at the time, which was over a year ago when we were considering it. So. You know, the cost involved is, is high, the amount of uh, effort it takes each individual employee, because it's not just uh, for people who don't know, there, there's quite a number of things that you have to do, especially around uh, individual employee, like computer security and having them do trainings and all this kind of stuff, in addition to having processes set up internally. And so uh, it was quite a bit of lift, uh, I would say, internally and to finally get over that hurdle and get our first, you know, certification report uh feels good and um i think the larger deals should hopefully go smoother now and um and i think the team is in general just doing better about closing larger uh corporate deals now that we've had quite a number under our belt so um it feels like a an interesting um maturation point for the company to be able to handle i mean we have many many large companies um that you know everyday names and so it's uh it's really cool just being able to, to sign them up and and be considered a, an established software provider that's good enough for you know fortune fortune 500 companies indeed yeah are you planning to put that soft two certification logo or something on the website like on the front page yeah 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 we've got a, a, a sauna task right now where we're mapping out like all the places <laughs> we're going to be uh putting the badge and like doing uh, communication and everything because yeah i think it's uh, important to announce it 
definitely, definitely. I mean, I was talking with one of my friends in a bar, um, I think a couple of months back, and he he uh, moved to US, and he mentioned to me that it takes six seconds for enterprise customers to go on your website and see if they don't find software yeah. there, they will literally close the yes. browser tab. And yeah. it's a great opportunity for a company to put it like on their faces. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things where you don't know the deals you're losing because of what you said, right? Like they're not, if they don't see it, they're probably not going to write in because if you had it, you would have advertised it. Um, so uh, I think now that everyone is having to go through, I mean, even for us, as we were going through the audit, then we had to reach out to our vendors and it just trickles, right? It just trickles all the way down. And eventually everyone at some size will have to have it. Um, so it's uh, definitely a checkbox <laughs> that you want to make sure is, is done. Great stuff. Okay, great. Uh, so how often you do uh, release features and, and, and how do you measure the success of the features? Because I'm guessing, um, do you have like a scrum team or you have a product backlog and you go through it? Or how, how does the new feature request uh, comes to you or, or, or somebody who takes care of it? Yeah. yeah, I mean, we're, we're definitely always talking to customers. So our, our success team is always on the, on the phone with our uh, existing customers and new. We have, our, we have two product managers that um, are also uh, talking to customers about uh, feature wish lists and also trying to get feedback on things that we're kind of uh, marinating. Um, and so we're, we're organized into two different teams internally, uh, one PM with a couple of devs uh, each. Um, and a, sh a shared UX person. And so we're releasing, I think twice a week is, is kind of the pace of, uh, of deployments. Um, and, you know, we, we kind of set quarterly large, uh, direction changes. Uh, so that's kind of like the pace that, uh, you know, how we, how we adjust things. Um, and then, yeah, each PM kind of manages like the individual week to week, uh, things that the devs are working on feature wise. So things are kind of coming out all the time. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know if we measure success on a, each particular feature, because a lot of them are kind of incremental things that, you know, like uh, one of the newer things that we released was a uh, like AI based type stuff. So, you know, we, we collect a lot of written responses uh, from our people, but it's, a lot to read through, you know, you might have a hundred or 200 or 500. So doing an AI summary of that actually becomes very useful. And then, you know, we also release like AI sentiment, likes and dislikes, and then also kind of a chat GPT style thing where you can ask questions of those results. So, um, you know, we release those things and then we kind of just like monitor the usage. We, we use MetaBase to do a lot of, um, uh, reporting and query querying of the data. And we just look for, um, you know, a rate of usage that we, we think is reasonable. Um, the other thing that we use a lot is uh, post hog now for product analytics. Um, so, you know, I, I think, uh, another thing that, that as you're growing, you need to think about how you're going to do, uh, do this is like product analytics and trying to get all your data, uh, kind of squared away. I think when you're, when you're a little bit smaller, like you're not as worried about it. It's easy to find the data. Are you just looking at the database or, or looking at your Google analytics or something like that? But I think as the team scales and then you have like less technical people trying to query the data, then you kind of have to find places that, uh, like are more accessible for everyone to access. So, um, it's kind of yet another overhead that, uh, that comes with growing the team. Awesome. Perfect. Great. So I, I noticed that you mentioned you um, yeah, that the, the product is still fully bootstrapped. You have never raised anything. Yeah, yet. that's right. Yeah, still some funding. You know, I, I salute founders like you who, who actually built the whole company without raising money. You know, I, I was a big fan. I'm still a big fan of MailChimp because they did not raise anything for yeah. a very long time. And I really, really like the startups because, because you are you're the founders who actually prove that there is a need, there is a pain in the market, mm -hmm. and you address yeah. compared to you know the uh, the easy access money. I'm not saying they're they're bad startup. I'm just saying that it's it's at least ten times difficult yeah. for founders without investment yeah. compared to with investment. 
because yeah. I've seen people growing without uh, you know investment. They, their growth is slow but steady, and you know they they grow uh, they, they grow into the hearts of their customers. Yeah, basically. You know? Yeah, you have to be That's more cool. tuned in to uh, to customer satisfaction and like really solving that problem for them. And I mean that honestly that was. Part of the reason, one of the inflections for starting, uh, pivoting our focus from our previous business over to this one was we just kept getting so many love letters from our customers about how impactful the decision, uh, the data was to making the right decision for them. And seeing those stories over and over from like other small businesses was, was just super empowering that we wanted to do it for, you know, um, for everyone who wanted it. Great, great stuff. Good. Um, so just um, going um, back to um, to the story, is that just you and your uh, co-founder who built the first version and how long it took you to build that? Six months, a year? Uh, the first, first version was probably just a few weeks, <laughs> but it was crude. It was crude. Yeah. Uh, I mean, by that time, I think we were like kind of accustomed to rapid prototyping things. And so, yeah, we built the first version in a few weeks um, and then, you know, slowly iterated on it. Um, yeah, it was just the two of us. And then for the longest time, we had a marketing contractor and, and a VA. And that was kind of the team for years um, until we decided to scale. And then and then it was interesting because I think the the type of team that you build when you're just trying to kind of go more of the lifestyle business approach uh, is very different than the team as you're trying to build it to scale. And so, you know, you, we kind of had to like change gears in the, in the types of people that we hired and, um, invest more in people and team and culture. And, you know, it wasn't just, it couldn't just be us, uh, with a bunch of contractors and like task management, like, like that wasn't scaling, right? Like you can't just be the octopus with like, you know, all these arms. And so, um, relinquishing control obviously was like a really big thing and then empowering team members to just kind of act independently and, you know, building a proper company, uh, was a huge mind shift change from what we initially thought we were going to be building for a long time. Cause for a while we thought it would just live as like this random side project for a really long time, which is fine. Um, but then, you know, we, we saw the opportunity and we figured, well, what better, you know, thing to, to push on than this one. And so. We really want to give it our um, our full effort. Indeed, yeah, definitely. So when when did when you guys started? What was the pricing model at that time? And did you had paid customers from the day one, or did you started with a freemium model? And then what is the current pricing model, and what's yeah. the difference between these two? Yeah. Uh, so I guess if you, there's no point in hiding it. Cause I guess if you were to find the old hacker news post, it would still say that it was $5. It was our first price, uh, $5 for 50 responses. And we weren't even trying to make, we weren't trying to make money on it. Really. We were just trying to recoup costs of running it. Um, and we were, um, fans of the MicroConf community. So we, we would go to those, uh, conferences and, um, uh, you know, Patty 11 would always say like to double your prices and everyone would keep saying double your prices. And so like, we kept doing that like a number of times. Um, and so we, we kind of centered in on $50 for 50 responses. So it kind of made it nice a dollar per response. And that's still our starting price right now. Um, we probably did that five or six years ago. Um, so a dollar per response is kind of the base rate, uh, lowest being 15 responses. So $15. And then it kind of scales by um, complexity of the poll, or you know, if you want a hundred responses, it's you know obviously going to be a hundred dollars. So, um, still pretty much the same pricing model. We've experimented with a lot of different subscription type things because everyone says that it should be subscription. I think it's been difficult as we've had different customer profiles come through because, like I was saying, there's different testing cadences, and so shoehorning a subscription on a customer profile that doesn't have a recurring testing need just leads to unhappiness and churn. And so, uh, we kind of backed off that for a little bit and we do have subscriptions now, but it's completely optional. And only if people do feel like they have a need for a lot of repeat usage. Um, and I think that just puts us more aligned with the customer. Um, but a lot of our larger customers will do things like prepaid, 
credit purchases. And that's, that's where we're able to do more sales motion with the, uh, like corporate and enterprise customers. Awesome. Perfect. That's good. So I think I know now where I have to go when I start my next business for some research. Yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> everyone. <laughs> everyone, everyone. That's definitely great. So, uh, let me ask you some some uh, questions uh, related to you and your journey sure. with this, with this uh, you know, uh, prior. So, what was the what was the I would I would I don't want to use worse, but what was the worst decision you think you have made which could have changed the whole leap of the growth um, if you haven't taken that because I think that would help our listeners a lot, you know. Um. I don't know if I could pin it on a single worst decision. There were definitely a lot of bad decisions. I would say mostly around people in hiring. Um, I think as a founder who's maybe you have your special specialization in one area, for example, we're both technical, then I think you, you have the tendency to have kind of like an imposter syndrome about the other aspects of the business. And so you think that, Oh, I need, I should just hire an expert in sales or marketing or whatever it is. Um, and then you, you kind of have a, like a, an unright expectation for them to come in and like save the business and like, you know, like this save your expectation. And, um, I think that sets everyone up for failure. Um, and so we've, I, I would say that we've had some of those either with contractors or actual hire, like in, in a number of situations where we just think like, oh, well, let's just hire this person. And, you know, that's going to check that box. We don't need to worry about it. And so, um, you know, those are really costly. Like that's, I mean, salary hires are super expensive. Contractors like for, for a long term are also very expensive. So those were all, you know, a lot of dollars, a lot of thousands of dollars uh, out the door, which, you know, easily if we let it keep going, could have, you know, bankrupt the company. So, um, you know, I think there's a lot of truth to uh, founders uh, should try to do a little bit of everything to to kind of learn the space, even if even if you're not going to be great at sales or marketing or whatever it is. Like, I think it's helpful to kind of understand, um, you know, the motions or the the difficulties uh, of those jobs that you're going to be hiring for, so that when someone does come in. You're not, you're not just like black boxing and saying like, oh, well, go do your thing because then it's going to be frustrating when maybe they don't deliver or they take longer than you think it should, but maybe you just don't understand the job, right? So yeah, that would be my, my bad, bad decisions, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I get that. And I, I totally, I totally agree with you on this point because ultimately it's the team which makes a good company organization or a product. And if you have one bad person, it influences other people too. So as yeah. a founder, as an entrepreneur, you have a job to make sure that you're bringing people who encourage just, not just their team, but also you, because yeah. you want to learn from other people, right? Exactly. So it's, it's a very tough decision. Great stuff. Okay. So I think, I think we got uh, to the end. I would like to know one more thing before we jump to our, uh, you know, uh, superfire round. Sure. <laughs> and that is what was the one um, point or decision or or uh, a twist or or you know incident when you thought, okay, now I'm going to be a billionaire because now the company is going super fast, like a hockey stick way. You know, what was that moment? Would you be able to share with us with that? Um. I mean, I think it was the general time when we kind of discovered uh, Amazon e-commerce. I think it really opened our eyes to uh, kind of like what I was saying, that there's there's so many businesses out there that are like a random Gmail address, right? Like they, they don't look like a corporate uh, entity by any means, um, but they they could be wildly successful in whatever niche that it is. And and. Um, you know, maybe they're selling weird pet supplements or whatever it is. Right. And, um, so I think the discovery and that, that like epiphany of, uh, wow, there's like so many of these businesses and, and even more globally that are like spinning up every single day and selling in this global marketplace and, and the need and impacts, um, that we could have on their business is just so tremendous. And especially the repeat usage, uh, for certain types of customer profiles, 
Um, I mean, that's, that's really why we decided to try to run as fast as we can, uh, grow as fast as we can with, uh, you know, with revenue and profit, uh, because it, it's a huge market opportunity, um, that, you know, we, we think, uh, we're in a good position to capture. Awesome. Perfect. Okay. So, so we should wrap up then we are going, going to go into the lightning round now, and I've got seven quick five questions for you. Okay. Okay. Uh, just try to answer them as quickly as you can and yeah great so should we start all right <laughs> nervous <laughs> um what's one of the best piece of business advice you have received uh let's see i guess one thing that comes to mind is do things that don't scale so um i think uh i think a lot of people especially engineers tend to try to over engineer or process size things or, or not even attempt things that don't seem like they're going to be scalable. But, um, uh, I think in the very beginning or when you're starting something, you just have to, you know, get out, talk to people or manually do something over and over and over, you know, manually email people, even if it just seems like wildly inefficient, I think, uh, it's an important thing to, it's a great learning tool and. If you have to optimize it, then it's a good problem to have. Uh, I recently listened to a book called 4,000 Hours, um, High Management for Mere Mortals, I think. And uh, totally unexpected. I actually didn't know anything about the book. I thought it was going to be another normal time management book, but it was <laughs> much more about the uh, perspective of life and it was, it was fascinating. It was a, it was a really good book. I think it, it put a lot of things in perspective and, um, you know, we're big work life balance proponents here at FICFU. And so, um, you know, I think it really hit home and, uh, made you think about, uh, like what you're doing it all for and, you know, time management, uh, not trying to do as many tasks, but like, think about why am I even doing these and, and, um, am I actually focus on the important things. Yeah. Okay, great. I've heard about this book before. Yeah. So really good. I'm going to add into my list now. <laughs> <laughs> great. What's your favorite personal productivity tool or habit? Uh favorite habit? Or what was the first, or, the first... Uh, or productivity tool. Oh, I see. Uh productivity tool. Let's see. Uh I guess for work, uh Airtable. I think I think it's a, uh, it speaks to the like structured data plus automations and APIs, like every, every engineer's dream. And, and then also allows non-engineers to interact with it, right. You know, using the spreadsheet front end. So it, I think it's a uh, kind of transformative for a lot, a lot of businesses are running like no code, you know, just using Airtable and automations of stuff like that. So, and even more so when you can code to it, I think it's even more powerful. So we, we actually have that uh, integrated quite a bit into our our internal processes. Great. What's one attribute or characteristic in your mind of a successful founder? Uh, let's see. Well, we talked about perseverance, um, but um, uh, willing to like willing to fail and not not afraid of failing. I, I would. I would say, um, just having that perspective, I think, I, I think too many founders or want to be founders, uh, psych themselves out about failure or, or I won't be able to do this or, you know, like there's so many hypothetical, there's a million things stacked against you and, <laughs> and no sane person should actually do it. But, you know, I think founders kind of don't care and they just go do it anyways and they find a way to, to make it happen. So, you know, definitely. Wait, so, uh, what's a new or crazy business idea you would love to pursue if you had the time? Uh, new or crazy business idea. Huh? You know, it's kind of funny because I think as we were building a lot of other, as we were building this and other businesses, like we would always have that entrepreneurial ADD and we were spinning up so many different random things. Um, but it's funny because I think as we've been so focused on pick like it's, 
I don't want to say it killed it, but like it's tempered, <laughs> tempered the, the ADD to, to be more focused. So I, you know, honestly haven't had much opportunity to think about other opportunities. Um, I would like to see more stuff, uh, uh, actual use cases around crypto. And I think, um, I think it's, it's kind of frustrating that it kind of like went high, got hyped up too much, then it kind of like flamed out a little bit without some of the more practical uses of like smart contracts and everything like come to fruition. So I think uh, something in that space, I think would be kind of like a next interesting thing to explore. Okay, great stuff. Um, what's an interesting or fun fact about you that most people don't know? Huh. Let's see. I don't know if it's fun, uh, I guess, but uh, I enjoy, you know, uh, smoking and grilling meat. So, you know, that's, that's kind of a random hobby. Yeah. <laughs> cool. And finally, what's one of the, one of, one of your most important passion outside of your work? I guess uh, most of my time is just spent with my raising my kids. So um, kind of talking towards a work-life balance. Uh, my wife works full-time, so I'm the one who drives the kids to school and all their activities and kind of like parent them throughout the day as as I balance working here in my home office. So um, yeah, I mean, that's the biggest priority is just trying to make sure that they're, they're raised correctly and um, you know, I'm involved in their activities and helping coach their basketball teams and all that kind of stuff. So that's where all of my energy goes outside of work. Great. I'm guessing you're buying lots of Jordan shoes then. <laughs> oh my God. We just bought, we just bought new shoes like two days ago. I'm like, man, these, <laughs> these are so expensive. <laughs> I know. I know the feeling. Great. Well, Justin, thank you so much for joining me and sharing your story and packing the last years of building this business and, you know, some of the ups and downs along the way. Uh, so if people want to check out Pikafu, they can go to pikafu.com yep. and also find you. Uh, can they find Pikafu on App Store or Android Store? Or No, it's just on the web. Yeah, P-I-C-K-F-U.com. Um, LinkedIn is probably the best social channel for both the company and for myself. So you could find Justin Chen there. Um, yeah, happy to connect on LinkedIn perfect, for anyone. Perfect. Well, great. It was great being, uh, you know, uh, a host with you. Uh, it was amazing to learn more about you. And I hope then uh, within a few years, when you become a billionaire, I would uh, get you the time as a host and would like to chat again. Yeah, sounds good. Thanks, Ash. Thank you all for tuning in to this episode of our SaaS Stories podcast. I hope you found our conversation with Justin insightful and inspiring. If you are a founder or industry expert interested in sharing your story on our SaaS Stories podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out. Simply email me at ash at artcircles.com and let's connect for a potential interview opportunity. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe to our podcast and stay updated on future interviews with proven founders and industry experts. We have a lineup of incredible guests and valuable insights coming your way. Stay inspired, stay motivated, and keep building.